All right, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians this morning. Big surprise. Chapter 7. So if this is your first time, we've been going through the book of Corinthians together. Um, and it's a difficult book in many respects. And part of what makes it hard is that Paul is writing a letter to people. It's a little bit like listening to half of a phone conversation because they have asked him, they have, they have already sent some letters back and forth and they've asked some questions. They've sent people to ask him questions in person. And we don't get those. Sometimes he'll say, you asked me about this and he'll answer it. But that's actually kind of rare because why would you do that if you, the people you're talking to actually just asked you a question? So quite often he's like, you asked me, so I'll answer. And then you get an answer and you're filling in a lot of blanks, okay? And that's a little bit what our text is like this morning, okay? Um, and so I will do my best to lead us through the weeds and not get stuck in the weeds, all right? It's a little bit challenging. Um, so we're going to start with uh, verse 6. Um, a couple of things that make this difficult. The, the first section I'm going to go over is not that hard. It gets hard in a minute when we talk about singleness and marriage and why Paul is single and all of that, Okay. If you're married, let me just ask you up front, don't get irritated. He's not, he's not speaking against marriage, all right? I'll just say that up front. But a couple of things that make this hard is one, the language itself is kind of difficult in places. I can help you with that some. Um, there's a huge cultural divide between them and us. I don't know if you ever noticed this when you read your Bible, but there's some pretty significant differences between America in 2022 and the ancient Near East in the first century, okay? Just not to, language being maybe the least of those differences, okay? Um, and we'll get, we're going to bump into some of those this morning. Um, Paul's talking about a guiding principle here, not a law. He specifically says, I'm not making a law here. I'm just giving you some principles. And we all know how principles work. There's the principle, and then there's all the exceptions to that principle, Okay? And life, that's why making some decisions are really difficult. What job do I take? What city do I live in? What house do I buy? Do I have kids, not have kids? Do I get married, not get married? Where's a verse? I need a verse that tells me specifically, and what do you have to do? You have to say, well, there's this principle, and there's this principle, and I'm going to throw them in a bag and mix them up and see what I come up with, right? And that's what life is like, and that's what this is like, okay? Um, Okay, so the fact that the Roman Catholics have taken this verse that we're going to read and used it to impose celibacy on their priests, while at the same time many evangelicals won't hire or ordain a single pastor, tells you how many different interpretations there are of the verse we're going to read, okay? Um, there, there is a convergence of many controversies over this one verse, all right? And I am not going to go down all those rabbit trails just up front, all right? I won't talk about the Catholics again. Okay, maybe. All right. Okay, so let's get into it. Let's wade in. All right. First Corinthians seven. Uh, let's start in verse seventeen. Seventeen through twenty-four. He says, "Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him." Hold on. I need to zoom. Modern problems. Y'all don't want me to. Uh, not zoom or I'll leave words out and then you'll accuse me of changing scripture all right I'll turn it around this way oh that's better all right 
This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at that? Wait a minute. I'll just start over in verse 17. All right? I left my reading glasses at home. This is not good. Oh, it's up there. All right. Verse 17. We'll start over. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who has called in the Lord as a bondservant is a, is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. So there's your principle in verse 24. All right? By the way, verses 20 to 23, where he is a clear rebuttal to anybody who says Paul was pro-slavery or wasn't anti-slavery enough. Okay? That's another side quest that we were not going to go down. All right? So Paul's giving us a very important principle here, okay? The circumstances of your life are basically irrelevant to your calling to serve God. It doesn't matter where you are or who you're with or what the context is, what your career is, what it's not, what church you're in, what church you're not in, who you're with, who you're not with, what if you're rich, poor, whatever demographic you belong to, uh, it doesn't matter. It has no effect on the calling you have. In other words... You don't have to quit your job and become a missionary when you become a Christian. Stay where you're planted. But if you want to move and change, you can. It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Okay? This runs exactly counter to the common perception that the people that are doing the real church work are the most called and the rest of the people just working a job are less called. I wrestle with this constantly. Because sometimes I'm having conversations with some of you, or all of you, really, and I can tell there's a difference that you perceive between the, value, the kingdom value of what I'm doing versus the kingdom value of what you're doing. And you sort of feel like because, you're, Ben, you're up there and you're kind of clearly preaching the Bible and you're counseling with people about Jesus all the time, and this is kind of what you do, that somehow you're doing more good things, that God's more happy with you, or thinks you're more close to the Bible than the rest of us. And it is absolutely not true. I would actually say, based on what Paul says here, because where I'm planted is amongst a bunch of Christians. That's where I'm planted. I'm a pastor of a church. And I'm okay with that, but, it, but it's a challenge for me to get around unsaved people because as soon as they find out that I'm either a pastor or a former English teacher, both make people uncomfortable, the conversation is essentially over. <laughs> I try to hide that without lying as long as possible. Both of those facts. You don't have that problem. And so I think Paul would actually say you have an advantage over him and over me in that sense. 
So why would you assume that it's better to get pulled out of the world and stuck into a different context that seems more Christian, that somehow that's what God's best is for you, because it's not. Paul is clearly saying that's not true, all right? Obviously, the exception to this is that if you're doing something before you become a Christian that was sinful or harmful, you should stop it, okay? If you're a drug dealer and you become a Christian, you can't use this verse to say, well, I can still deal drugs because right? Uh, you, but if it also means about on the, same, on the same coin, if you're doing something dishonestly that you can now do honestly, right? If you're a business owner that's shady and you become a Christian, don't say, I don't, can't be a business owner anymore. Just be a godly business owner. And people will see the difference and they'll go, wow, what's up with you? You're different. And they'll be led to Christ that way. They'll see Jesus that way, okay? So what in the world does this have to do with singleness? Well, it carries right over. This principle, right? The principle he gives us there in verse 24 carries right over to why Paul is single and why he thinks there's at least some advantages to being single, okay? But if you're married, by the way, this applies to you too. There's a, the principle applies to you also. All right. Let's look at verse 25 to 40. One note on your translations, because if you're not using the ESV, you might have something different, okay? The word there uh, that's translated in the ESV as betrothed can also be translated as unmarried or virgin. I think the NIV is virgin. And so if you don't know that that word in Greek can be translated those three different ways, and you read, now concerning virgins, you're like, whoa, this just got weird, right? <laughs> because in our world, that, that word ha only has to do with your sexual status, right? But in their world, it had almost nothing to do with sexual status and had everything to do with marital status. If you were unmarried and had never been married before, you were a virgin, okay? Also, if you were betrothed, which is like an engagement but it's not the same as our engagement. You see how this gets confusing? Our idea of engagement just means you've put a date on the calendar to get married and you're loosely committed to getting married, right? But you can back out whenever you want and it's like no harm, no foul, right? In fact, I like to say to the groom, if I'm doing the wedding, right before the wedding, are you sure? Because we can walk out that door and get in the car and leave right now. And I'm dead serious, right? Uh, because it's true until you say I do. But in this culture, it's a little different. A betrothal and engagement was like it was legal. It was like a legal commitment. Um, you were sort of three-fourths married. You weren't completely married, but you were very much committed, okay? It's a little bit different, all right? So all of that kind of comes together in this soup we're going to read, all right? Verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. It's important. <laughs> and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. 
This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and has been, um, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed is well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. All right, everybody okay? So let's just kind of work through some of the stuff, okay? Verse 25 makes clear that Paul's not creating a law here. That's the first thing you got to see. He goes way out of his way to kind of say, I'm not trying to put a restraint on you. If you get married, it's not a sin. If you don't marry, it's not a sin. I'm not creating a law. He even says, this is my opinion. Isn't that interesting? This is a different category than when Paul says, this is the gospel. And if you don't believe this gospel, you're not a Christian. If you teach anything other than this gospel, you're a heretic. This is a different category, okay? That's number one thing, that's the first thing you got to see. So don't get bent out of shape if you're married. I'm sure, sure not, and I'm happily married, all right? You see a pattern here of Paul stating his opinion and then providing exceptions and caveats to that opinion, which is part of why this is confusing. This reminds me of when people ask me about who, who are you voting for? Or what do you think about vaccines? Or blah, 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 et cetera. Make a list of things that are secondary or even third-level issues. I am immediately worried that when I give my opinion, the person I'm giving my opinion to will feel like as though I'm imposing something as the pastor on their conscience. And then I'm going to say that what I'm doing is what you should do. And what I, what I think and who I'm voting for or whether or not I'm getting the jab or not, somehow you should think, well, now I, I feel like I have to. I've had people get mad at me because they weren't clear, I wasn't clear about the difference between my opinion and making a law. I'm not making a law. This is just when you ask me what I'm doing and this is what I'm doing. It doesn't mean you should do that, right? And so you end up doing this obnoxious little dance in the way you talk of, being honest, but also saying, but I'm not saying, and it gets kind of annoying, and you look like a wimp, and it comes off confusing. And that's part of what's happening here, is Paul's trying to be careful to say, this is how I see my own singleness. Paul's single, he's not married, as was Jesus. 
And he's trying to explain why without putting binding people and putting a law on them, all right? So he begins verses 26 to 27 by saying that if you aren't married, you don't need to get married. That's the first principle. If you are not married, you do not need to get married. If you are married, you don't need to get divorced. Referring back to the, what, we just, what we started with, stay as you are, it's fine, all right? There were people, apparently, at least in Corinth, that, were, that believed that if you were, um, he, he addresses this later, that if you're, uh, like, imagine two couples, not Christians, one gets saved, that at that point, you should get divorced automatic because you're a Christian. So imagine saying, because now you're saved, you shouldn't be bound to this woman or husband who's not a believer, so therefore you should automatically get divorced. And he's like, no, 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 stay, stay as you are, okay? I also need to point out that Paul is single, and this is really, really, really not the norm in this culture. Like, if you think it's not the norm now... If you're single and you feel a little out of place, it was way worse in Paul's day. So what Paul is saying here is something very countercultural. Okay. I mean, can you imagine being married to Paul? Think about what he went through. The places he went. How many times he was near death. How many times he was beaten, imprisoned, shipwrecked, bitten by snakes. On and on and on and on. Imagine like having to travel with him as his wife. What if he had had kids? What would it have been like for his kids? Think about Jesus the same way. Like what, what would that have been like? Probably not a pleasant ride. Difficult. And could Paul have done what he did and as much as he did if he had been married and had kids? I don't think so. So you can understand from his perspective, right? From his vantage point, he's going, y'all, there is no, you, <laughs> this is what I'm called to do. And if I'm going to do what I'm called to do, I, can't, I cannot be married and have kids. It's not what I'm called to do. But he's very quick to say that not everyone has to go this route, nor should they. All right, so the crux of what the Spirit is saying through Paul, I believe, is right here in verses 29 to 31. And I think if you're kind of confused or frustrated by this, this will help you, okay? Um, I'm going to read this again, verses 29 to 31. He says, this is what I mean, brothers. In other words, okay, he's saying, okay, all the stuff I'm saying, I know I'm kind of going back and forth, trying to qualify everything, but like, look, this is what I'm really trying to say, okay? This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. In other words, we are aliens and strangers here. We do not belong. So live your life. Enjoy it. Use it. Buy things, do things, have a job, have a wife, have kids, do the stuff, enjoy your life, eat a steak, it's fine. Just don't act like any of that stuff is what life is really about, because it is not. 
not even close. I feel like he's in a poetic form fleshing out what Jesus meant by be in the world but not of it. It's like, live, go ahead. You're not called to come out of the world. He's already told us. I'm not calling you to, you're not called out of it to go live in some monastery inside the walls of the church where you can't be touched by anything in the world, where you don't enjoy anything and everything's hard and you're like somehow you're more holy if you're suffering and just hide away from the world until Jesus comes back. He's like, no, don't do that. But at the same time, do not get stuck or caught in the trap of thinking that all this stuff in life is what life is because it's not. It's about the kingdom. The time is short. We're running out of time. Life is short. You get just a few years, and they go by like that. So don't start thinking that a happy marriage is all that life is. It's really not. I mean, I want you to have a happy marriage. It's important. But I don't do a sermon series every year on marriage because it's not the most important thing. The ultimate form of a Christian is not the Christians that have a happy marriage. You know that? It's not like level two Christianity is happy, happily married couples and level one is singles. You know what the ultimate form of a Christian is? It's someone who is radically sold out to the mission of the kingdom of God and obeying Jesus Christ in their life. That is the ultimate form of a Christian, whether you're married or not married. That's, the hot, that's what you're shooting for. Not a happy marriage with 2.5 kids and a nice house in the suburbs with two cars in the garage at least where you don't ever fight with your spouse and there's never any friction and your kids are well-behaved and well-mannered and they know how to, they, they, they love their vegetables <laughs> and they don't smell weird. Like that is not the ultimate goal of this life. That's Paul's main point. And so everything in this section, we got to put through the filter of those verses where he says, this was what I'm trying to say. Stop getting hung up on the marriage thing. It doesn't matter. It doesn't. Married or not, just go for it. All right, so I think there's some corrections for us and encouragements, which, by the way, with God, they tend to be the same thing. <laughs> when God corrects you, it comes with an encouragement. So these are just some I've thought about as I was praying about this. I think there are many more things you could maybe that you are personally being convicted about as we talk, but these are the ones I came up with. First of all, if you're single, how can you use your freedom as an advantage for the kingdom of God? Trust me, you're way freer right now. What is the most radical and risky thing you can think of to do that you are gifted and equipped to do? Like, what if you thought that way? What if you looked at your life and said, what's the, not what's the safest thing I can do, or what's the best thing I can do for my career, or what is the thing I can do that will get me married the quickest? But what if instead you asked yourself, what is the craziest thing I can do that will have the biggest impact on the kingdom of God? 
and then ask, why are you not doing it? Why not? I think that's a powerful question. Secondly, if you're single, I just want to challenge you, don't waste any time pining away for a husband or a wife. Don't waste a second. I know it's hard. When I was single, I really, really wanted to be married. And then when I met Heather, I really, really, really wanted to be married to her. And that was right, and God called us together. But instead of waiting around for the right man or the right woman, why don't you throw yourself into disciple-making in as radical a way as possible? Risk your life for it. Burn the candle at both ends. Pour yourself out as a drink offering over the church. I mean, what else are you going to do? Pour yourself out for a career that's going to be over in 50 years? I say no. I say listen to Paul. Paul is like, I'm not, I didn't wait for my ministry to start until I got married. I just started doing ministry. And then I figured out, oh, I'm called to do this crazy radical thing. I'm all over the place. There's no way I can get married. And I'm okay not being married, so I'm just not going to do it. Even if the culture is going, I don't know if I trust you, Paul. You're single. How can you, you know that we, our theology of marriage, pro-marriage theology in the church mostly comes from Paul, who was single? You're going to tell him he doesn't get to speak to marriage because he's not married? So I want to challenge you if you're single to, to abandon all else to this. That you really are free to risk in ways that I am not because I'm married and I have kids. All right, if you're married, I want to encourage you to stop treating single women like they have a disease and the cure is a man. Stop it. Sweetie, I just, we're going to find you a man. How about, sweetie, risk everything. What do you have to lose? And let's see if there's a man that can keep up with you. And if there's a man out there who can keep up with you and can catch up to you, and get, get enough of your attention to ask you to marry him, maybe then marry him. But you need to go for it. Don't wait around. It fires me up because I have daughters. But it's often the married people who, and, and look, it comes from a good place. Okay, I'm, I'm kind of yelling at you. I don't mean to yell at you. It comes from a good place because you love being married, and I love being married. I'm very pro-marriage. I talk about how great it is all the time. I, I can't imagine not being married to my wife, Heather. I just, it's wonderful. And so you want other people to enjoy that. But look at it from a kingdom perspective, right? On the converse, stop treating single men like they're less worthy of trust or incomplete because they don't have a woman. I want you to try to imagine, I know it's a horrible thought, but try to imagine me not married. 
I will be way less effective. It'll be way less awesome. We all know that's true. But I just want you to think about your trust in me. Most of you trust me in terms of my character. Would you trust me less if I lived in an apartment by myself and was not married and had no kids? Would you come to me and ask me for marriage counseling? If I had never been married before, would you ask me for help with your kids if I had no kids? If the answer is no, there's something wrong, there's something not kingdom-centered in your perspective on marriage, and I would submit there's a little bit of marriage idolatry in your heart. There's something about your perspective that thinks that your status makes you better than other people who don't have your status. And that is a cultural infection in your thinking. It is not Bible. Because I wouldn't look Paul or Jesus in the face and say, I trust you a little less because you're not married. This is challenging. You see how radical when, when Paul's perspective is and Jesus' perspective is like kingdom first? That's what he means. It's like the way I look at the world is kingdom first. I also want to say to those of you who are married, you are uniquely called by God and your spouse cannot do it for you. So take this idea of radically going for it. The time is short. Let's not play games. Let's not act like this stuff is what life is. That life has got to be more than this, including just having a happy marriage. What does that mean for you if you're married? It means that I am responsible before God for what I'm called to do. And part of that is I'm called to be a good husband to her. So that means I have a double burden. Okay? The baseline is treat my wife well and be a good dad. But that does not exempt me from pouring myself out for the church and proclaiming the gospel to the nations. It just means I have to do that and. But what guys tend to do particularly is to say, well, all I can handle is working a job providing for my family, and keeping it to my marriage together. And I'm just not going to put any effort into anything else. I'm not going to ask the question, God, what do you want me to do for the kingdom? All I'm going to do is this. And I don't want to minimize that. I don't want to minimize being a good dad and being a good husband. I'm just saying that's like the low watermark for you. This is what you signed up for when you got married. Maybe you didn't know it. Maybe you thought, this is the ultimate. Now I'm, a real, I'm fully realized as a human being now that I'm married. Now you're finding out that's not true. You can't live vicariously through your spouse. You can't. It's a both-and thing. So church, single believers should feel no less cared for, loved, received, trusted, respected, and challenged than married people. They should feel no less welcome in your home than married people. And we should not treat them with kick gloves. I think we should be saying to single people, go for it. Why are you sitting still? <laughs> you should have no free time at all. You should be busier than the people with seven or eight kids. You should be more radically moving all the time obsessed 
with making disciples, being a blessing to the church, proclaiming the gospel to the nations. God, I'll go anywhere you want in the world, any place. I'll learn any language. I'll live any kind of way you want. If you want me poor, I'll be poor. If you want me to make money for the kingdom, I'll make money for the kingdom. If you want me to, to sell everything like you told the rich young ruler and give it to the poor and whatever you want me to do, I'll do wherever you want me to do it. That's what we should be pushing them to do. Not sweethearts, sit still and wait for a husband. You know, over the years, um, I've always told Heather that she has the right and the authority. Anytime she says it, she only has to say it once, but she can say to me, I don't want to do this anymore. Let's quit. I don't want you to be a pastor anymore. And she only has to say it once, and I'll quit immediately. It will be an instant phone call to our elders say, I'm not doing another Sunday. I quit. No one else in my life has that power. Not any of you. Now, y'all can fire me. But you don't, you, none of you can come say to me, I want you to quit. Because I'll look at you and say, no, I'm called to do this. And Heather says, I can do it. <laughs> but I give her that because we're married. But you know what? She's never said it to me. Even when she's gotten bitten and hit and abused and hurt by people. Even when I've wanted to quit. She'll look at me and say, come on, man, I didn't marry a wimp. she give me that look. Get up, let's go. Come on, suck it up, old man. Not that it's always been that way, but there's been moments. But we made that decision when we got married. And she would not have married me. I probably would have married her, but she would not have married me if I was not saying to her, this is how we're going to live. We're going to lay it all down no matter what. And we're going to go for it. This is what our life is going to be. No matter how many kids we have, or how few kids we have, whatever it is, that's not what life is going to be. And this is how you marry. If you're going to get married, this is how you marry. You marry somebody who's chasing after God at least as hard, preferably harder than you are. And you never slow down to let them catch up. You don't, you don't, she doesn't slow down for me because I'm having a bad month. She keeps pressing into God, keeps doing what she's called to do. And she looks at me sometimes kind of annoyed, saying, come on, speed up, let's go. Press into God. What are you doing lagging behind? There's none of this like, well, I'm just waiting on my husband to get it together. I'm just waiting on my wife to get it together. I'm just waiting for our marriage to get better. I'm just waiting for my kids to get older. Don't wait. That's Paul's message. Don't wait. And don't encourage each other to do the same. Press each other forward, as Paul does. And this is why Paul is single. This is, how he made, this is why he made that decision. As he looked at his calling, and he, said, and he looked at the idea of marriage, and he said, you know what? They're not going to go together. And if I commit, make a covenant for marriage, then I have to keep that covenant. Right? So it's, he's also saying it's a horrible failure 
especially when ministers, we have a, evangelicals have a terrible track record. Most of our, my heroes of the faith of history have utterly failed as husbands and fathers. And that is an inexcusable failure. It's absolutely inexcusable. And so that's not okay, <laughs> in case you're wondering. But it's also not okay to sit around twiddling your thumbs and say, well, my marriage is good, my job is good, the bills are paid, I'm going to sit back and watch Netflix. All right. I'd like to pray for us. And I want to pray for the, kind of the two categories that seemed, Paul seems to be addressing here, which is single and married. I want to start with praying for singles that you will be stirred up, that if, you're, if there's anything in your heart that elevates marriage in an idolatrous way, or in a way that says, I'm just going to wait until a man comes along or a woman comes along, and then I'll get busy doing the thing. That God will completely kill that in your heart. And that we'll have some radical, crazy things coming out of the single people in this church. And number two, for the, those of us who are married, that you will not settle for just shooting for or targeting that baseline of kind of happiness in life everything's smooth and marriage is fine and kids are fine. But instead, you'll say, I want that. I'm dedicated to that because I made a covenant and a promise and it pleases God, but I want to do more. I don't want to act like that's all life is. Amen. I just want to pray for both of us. So God, we just come before you. God, first, I just lift up all the single people in our church. I hope this morning they don't feel weird because of the topic. Holy Spirit, I ask you just to fill them with power and zeal for your kingdom. God, the, the life plan that the world has offered them of career, family, success, build a life for yourself, God, that that would seem not so much evil, but as just way too low of an expectation. God, I pray that you would put your expectation on them, your zeal, your goals, your vision for their life. And God, that it would be radical and risky. God, that everything they do would be bent around this mission to strengthen the church and declare your gospel to the nations. God, that they would risk their life and limb and security for that mission. God, I pray that they would be stirred up this morning for that. And God, for those of us who are married or are called to be married, God, I pray that we would also not wait around for our spouses to get in gear, but that we would pursue you with everything. God, I pray for every broken, disordered marriage here God, it is like a, it can be like a trap around the ankles, like a rope around the ankles that trips us up and slows us down. God, I pray that you would restore and heal marriages so that they can get back to doing what you call them to do. God, that marriages would not be speed bumps for people, but instead it would be life-giving and an encouragement and strengthening. God, not for our own happiness, but for your kingdom. God, give us the zeal of Christ, the zeal of Paul. It is the same spirit in Paul that is in us. 
And God, I pray that you would refocus us this morning on that. God, we repent of treating the things of life as though it's all there is. God, keep us out of that trap. We pray this in the name of your wonderful son, Jesus. Amen.